The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Hum in the Drum edition. It's Wednesday, July 19th, 2017. On today's show, Baby Driver is the latest tour to Magnum Force from director Edgar Wright. He of uh, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and... uh, Dana, give me some more titles here. Uh, At World's End, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Anyway, we'll discuss. And then Jay-Z's latest album, 444, is being greeted as a reflective response to his own life, career, and his uh, marital shortcomings as aired by his wife, Beyonce, on her Lemonade project. We discuss with Slate's own Jack Hamilton. And finally, David Brooks goes to lunch. Joining me today is Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. And uh, Slate's uh, editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi. Steve, before we start, can I interject with uh, an outcry of calumny against the Slate Culture Gab Fest? <laughs> sure. Or against calumny? That sentence didn't really make sense. But we were roundly uh, cuffed on the uh, Slate Culture Gab Fest Facebook page for our ginger shaming and body shaming <laughs> of Ed Sheeran. It was assumed that we objected to the song Shape of You uh, because we are lookist and because we did not think anyone who had the appearance of Ed Sheeran uh, had any business singing about putting his body near anyone else's body. And I just want to say that is a ludicrous charge in my view. I'm curious to hear what Steve and Dana think. But uh, I have a strong record of being pro-ginger generally and I'm married to a redhead. So I defy anyone <laughs> to suggest that I am anti-gender. I think if anything, I'm pro. Um, but I also feel like the the I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question, I guess. But like, I don't feel I don't I barely know what Ed Sheeran looks like. I feel like my response to that song and its doofy sexuality has to do with the sound of it. Like it just it doesn't sound sexy. I don't I, I but maybe I, maybe I am secretly lookist. I don't know. Dana, did did the did the outcries of our anti ginger Sheeran lookism uh twang plaintive heartstrings within you. I mean, I you, I feel like you'd have to do some pretty deep reaching to find anything anti-Ginger or anti-his appearance that we said in the podcast. Did we even mention the color of his hair? But I will say that when Ed Sheeran showed up in a cameo in Game of Thrones this week, which I don't watch, but was richly informed by on social media, <laughs> I felt like there was also a wave of not necessarily lookist, but sort of I don't know, uncool, anti-uncoolness hatred toward Ed Sheeran that made me feel for him a bit. It's not his fault that he has a big dopey face and a, a mop of red hair and is not sort of our, our, our macho ideal. And I wonder if he were a hotter looking guy by conventional standards, if we might have ridiculed that song a little bit less. That said, I don't think that there was any direct put down of, of Sheeran himself. And then, then it was the song we were trashing, not the man. I also am like pro-dork generally. Like I, I'm all for geeks. Uh, but there's something about the, I, I don't know, something about the delivery of that line and the line, put your body on me or put my body on you. Like that's just not a good line. Like <laughs> we were objecting to the aesthetics of the music, not the maker of the music. So uh, take that. It is possible to object to to shape of you for non anti gingerist grounds. All right, Steve. Fine. What what are we actually supposed to talk about today? Baby, he says, is his real name, and he is a baby faced kid who drives against his will for a criminal gang. Maybe to help salve his conscience, he treats each heist 
almost like it's a music video hitting play on his iPod as the job unfolds. Edgar Wright's movie was rapturously greeted by festival audience. It's mad, bad, fast, cheap, and not at all out of control. Wright, who directed Shaun of the Dead, among other movies, he's a director's director, and he appears to have thought through every line and every frame of his hyper-violent, hyper-fun genre turn. Why don't we listen to a clip? Questions. I got a question, Doc. Why would I believe phones over here heard the goddamn word you said? You lay down your whole play. He ain't even listening. Baby. The target is an armored truck at Perimeter Trust in Dunwoody, 10 a.m. sharp. We have the details of the route because someone at the depot has a nasal problem. The bank itself is right near the Buford Highway, so we should be able to hit the ramp within 60 seconds of getting out. We also have a diversion crew. They're going to blow up a bread truck a ways away, keep the fuzz busy. The dress code is the Michael Myers Halloween mask, but don't all buy your mask at the same time. It looks suspicious. The switch car is ready, but you want me to hit the long state parking structure at Hartsfield Jackson to get a heist vehicle that stays colder longer? Boost a commuter car, a family car, something that blends in well with morning traffic. Something on the heavy side, in case we need to ram the cops off the road, to Escalade, Yukon, Avalanche, whatever. It needs to be ready for an 8.30 start in the AM. Questions? Well, ain't y'all cute? That's my baby. <laughs> it's funny that line contains, well, ain't y'all cute, which is one of the main notes I took from from watching this movie and kind of st- structures my discussion of it because I feel like this movie is maybe a little too cute for its own good. But basically what we're hearing there is just the gang, the sort of ever-shifting gang that's run by Kevin Spacey as a mob boss, the only consistent member of which is Baby Driver. Um, so because he's this genius getaway driver, he is always on every job, but the rest of the gang switches among various uh, criminal characters, one played by John Hamm, one by Jamie Foxx, and one by Isa Gonzalez. So that's basically just them d- planning their next heist. Mm-hmm. Right. And we should say that uh, Baby Driver is played by Ansel Elgort, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes, the teen uh-huh. dreamboat of such movies as the Div- Divergent Films and The Baltimore Stars. Um, and Lily James as a uh, waitress with a heart of gold. Dana, it is a waitress with a heart of gold kind of picture. What uh, What did you make of it? I mean, I wanted to love this so much. I was actually furious that I was on vacation the week it opened because I really wanted to review it. It ended up being Sam Adams who reviewed it very well for Slate, and I pretty much agreed with his review. But um, yeah, I'm a longtime Edgar Wright fan and uh, was really having high hopes for this one. And it might be my least favorite Edgar Wright movie, which does not mean I hated it. As you said, he's kind of a master of um, you know bringing music and action together, and it's sort of loads of fun. It's just unspooling, but... This movie, to me, just it, it was it was diminishing returns all the way through. And by the end, when it gets quite violent, I mean, there's a very high body count by the end of this movie. I just didn't feel like the the merry fun of the iPod playlist was quite justified. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, boo. That's my review. <laughs> yeah, like you ac- actively disenjoyed sitting through this movie. No, it actually reminded me a lot of La La Land in that it's like, let's do sort of balletic, musical, unusual things in a modern visual scape that doesn't exactly look like where you typically think of balletic musical things happening. Uh, Let's be extremely pleased with ourselves about all of the conceits which make this possible. Uh, And then let's have it all add up to like a big ball of nothing um, and not really mean anything about anything. Yeah. In a strange way, I feel like it's Edgar Wright's least mature movie. And it's coming right after his most mature movie, which was At World's End, the third 
installment in what's sometimes called the Cornetto trilogy, which was Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and then At World's End, all of which I love and all of which I think do very well what this movie tries to do, which is take this sort of mosaic of, you know, film references and pop culture references that we all know from other places and weave them into this kind of magical other story that is about much more than just our regard for pop culture. And this movie, mm-hmm. the weave out of the weave just didn't hang together. And may, maybe part of that has to do with the fact that it's not set in England. I mean, I think Wright's other weakest movie is Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which also has its, you know, jazzy touches and creative ideas, but doesn't really have the the heart and the kind of solidity of his English movies. I feel like he's so much more at home. He's so good at satirizing, you know, doing English social satire or the pub crawl or, you know, the things that those movies are about that are specifically of his native land. And I'm not sure that the transition to Hollywood has totally worked for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, oh my, my, I have so many feelings. I mean, I, I, there were moments about half to two thirds of the way through this movie where I thought I absolutely loved it. And I was shocked because, um, among the things I most hate in the world are, are people who create pastiches out of pop culture as if that's the only experience they've had in life. And he flirts with that, but Dana, I think you nailed it exactly. He attempts to use that weird, you know, magpie uh, appropriation, secondhand appropriation of, of p- beloved pop culture, you know, um, uh, items from the archive. He try, attempts to weave it into something human in a way that I think is quite successful like weirdly successful and affecting the you know the backstory here is that um and it gives nothing away to say that that baby driver you know lost his mother in a car accident and so there's this attempt at you know emotional reclamation through driving or something it kind of worked for me and then a, a tarantino movie broke out about um three quarters of the way through or about 20 percent of the movie left um which I guess it would be four fifths of the way through. Um, uh, the <laughs> the, um, the uh, a Tarantino movie breaks out and hyper it it um, it lapses into hyper violence in a way that is complete almost completely unentertaining. But then it kind of redeems itself with a coda. And I think his genius as a filmmaker is is coming right up against the edge of where glib turns into something inhuman, but finding the humanity in it. However, one last qualifier there was something I, i'm very curious to hear whether you thought there was something just a little thin and heteronormy about the relationship with the waitress which is meant to provide a lot of the humanity and suspense especially as the movie goes on yeah everything is sort of paperweight in this i mean it's just it's just it's it's thin and i, I mean lily james who plays the waitress makes a lot more of the role than there is. She's a she's manic pixie dream waitress, but in a manner that's not completely irritating in my view. Um, but all she does is kind of like flutter her eyelashes at Ansel Elgort for most of the movie. But to me, the part that felt the most then was Ansel Elgort's relationship to violence. Like the whole idea is that he's, you know, such a sweet kid and he's just been swept up into this because of his unfortunate circumstances and he really hopes to you know, get out of the game before things go totally sideways. One last big job. Why just one last job. And then I, it is also not a spoiler to say that things go sideways, at which point he seems to have like no moral compunction about anything. Uh, I was trying to go over this in my mind and I don't want to spoil, you know, who does what in the movie, but it takes a long time in this movie before he is complicit in any act 
of violence, right? I mean, he's complicit in cover-ups and he's kind of aiding a lot of bad people to do bad things. But I think his character's purity is pretty well preserved until it's really a, a matter of self-defense. Yeah, I'm not saying it's without logic, but it just he's he's but he's sort of abetted so much at that point that it just I don't know, like his moral journey, which would be the thing that if it worked uh, and was actually like a serious theme or arc that that didn't feel paper thin. Like if all of this kind of fun and frippery was attached on top of a story that felt like it had real weight, I think I would have liked it more. But it just felt like, OK, and yeah. And then at the end of the film, he'll be really compromised and then I'll have to think of what he feels about it. And, uh, you know, it felt like morally a, a muddy, sch- a yeah. schematic for a moral arc that just somehow didn't land. Yeah, I would agree. And Kevin Spacey, too, has a I won't reveal what, but he has a bit of a character turning point or or shift in the way he views other characters. And you have no idea why it happens literally within the same scene without any apparent Mm -hmm. instigating element. Yeah, it's sort of like because I want it to. Right. I also the thing that I've always loathed most about Tarantino is his kind of gl- glib sadism and I I was sort of surprised that a movie that seemed to have heart allowed that to creep in. One thing I I really want to say though is that I I enjoyed the movie enormously. That that Wright is I mean he's just an absolutely first-rank talent and um it has <clears throat> a, it has a it has wit throughout which I thought really redeemed it. Um I w- laughed through the whole movie until the orgy of violence at the end. I thought Jamie Foxx was terrific. That character is very well drawn. If you pay attention to the movie, the the real point about Jamie Foxx's character is not only that he's frightening and violent um, and, and maybe possibly unpredictable, it's that he reads other human beings with a kind of frightening degree of clairvoyance and that's the most terrifying thing about him that that was hard to pull off and fox is brilliant in the role john ham is terrific in the movie he gives some line readings that are out of this world i mean it made me a fan of his work as someone who hadn't really watched mad men lily james julie i completely agree takes what is not an especially deeply written part and uh, makes it very, 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 very human. Uh, Kevin Spacey's terrific. I mean, he's kind of doing Kevin Spacey at this point, but no one does it better. Um, I really liked it. Uh, the question I would leave you with, though, is what do you make of Ansel Elgort, who in a way is supposed to be the movie's uh, Jean-Claude Belmondo, right? Like there's supposed to be a little bit of that, you know, someone who's been on the receiving end of a lot of American genre pictures and is kind of playing to it. At the same time, he's supposed to be almost completely mute and deadpan and i i I don't know did he do a great job with that or it something about it left me a little lost i did find myself wondering how much more would i have liked this movie if joseph gordon lovett played the lead role who i think if you were casting from scratch as the person you'd think of like who is a young physically adept actor who um is just like physically kinetic in in the way that um this role seems to want Ansel Elgort to be. There's one scene where he kind of like dances and bops to the music around the city uh, that sort of sets up the idea that everything is a soundtrack for him. And it's, I was sort of like, eh. Yeah, it's the editing and the kind of choreography that make that scene work. Can I can I raise one last complaint, pick a complaint about this movie? For something that is so 
spot on about the technology and he's got all these different iPods and they're from different eras and one of them has pink sparkles on it. And in general, it's sort of a pan to, to like music you can own, which is like no longer a thing, like just having the song you want at the right moment, which as we can get to in our Jay-Z discussion is like fucking difficult at this point. Um, however, there's a scene where he and Lily James are flirting by sharing music uh, and they're sh- they have like one earbud each in their ears. And anyone who has ever used those earbuds, which is probably 85 <laughs> gajillion percent of the people who've seen the movie, and also certainly everyone who's listened to this podcast, because you probably have those white earbuds in your ears right now, the split on it is like clearly wrong. Like they each have like one long ear that's like dangling down to their <laughs> own waist. But the point is that they're supposed to be joined together and they're like moving around a space tied together by joint earbuds. But the the just the the ratio of where the split is on the line is so clearly wrong. And I was like, you're gonna go to all this trouble to choreograph this like intimate scene and not actually let it be constrained by how snugly you have to be if you're sharing iPhone earbuds. And this whole movie is fetishizing like why why the fetishization of the iPod from 2001 and then complete disregard for the earbuds of 2017. <laughs> Ruin the whole movie for me. <laughs> well, not to mention the fact that no one who's serious about listening to music in their ears would even keep the iPod earbuds because they're shaped like no human ear aperture. But they're, that's another actually, another thing to get into. They're perfect for my ears. <laughs> alien, more proof. <laughs> oh She's an God. alien. <laughs> more proof, robot. Yeah, designed. Now we know that Apple made you too. Which um, one, guys? All make right, up your well, minds. Um, what, once, once again, Julia Turner cutting to the heart of the matter. Uh, I um, I love this movie. I can't hide it. <laughs> you know, you and didn't. I have anyway, to say, I, baby didn't, driver. I, I don't walk out saying this is the greatest movie of the summer and everyone can, should go see it. But I think that you'll have a fun two hours while watching it. You may love it. And if you're an Edgar Wright aficionado, you know, add it to your completest pile. Why not? Yes. Okay. So Baby Driver, check it out. Uh, we'll have many uh, divergent opinions on Facebook, I'm sure. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Moving on. All right. Well, before we uh, go any further, uh, Julia, surely we have some business here. What What do you have? So many things to share with our listeners. First, we are taking another international trip, not quite as far this time. We are going to the far-flung reaches of Toronto, Canada. We will be doing a live show on September 13th at the Toronto Public Library downtown as part of the Toronto International Film Festival. We'll be joined by friend of the show and Toronto's own Carl Wilson, who also joined us for our Montreal show. Let us never speak before the people of Canada without Carl Wilson <laughs> He's present. our Canadian <laughs> spokesman. Yes. He'll be doing simultaneous interpretation into Kennedy's. Yeah. <laughs> um, French Canada, Anglo Canada, if we're in Canada, it requires Carl Wilson. To Vancouver up us. next. Tickets will be free, but we'll also be doing a special after show cocktail hour as well. Um, we'll have details up on slate.com slash live later this week. Can't wait to see you there. I also want to let our listeners know about a slate show they should definitely be listening to. Isaac Chotner is I think the best interviewer in magazine journalism right now. He's been doing amazing interviews on the Slate site for a few years, um, starting with an extremely memorable interview of Cy Hirsch, but including, you know, uh, quick interviews off the news, big, long conversations with people like Jonathan Franzen. Um, And he's uh, incredibly smart, knowledgeable, self-possessed, charmingly prickly, uh, and really engages with his subjects in a way that's just rare. Like a lot of Q&As, you don't feel like the cueers are actually listening to the A and that the A informs the next cue at all. Um, and 
Isaac's cues are invariably very well informed by the A's. <laughs> to, to continue this absurd way of talking for a little bit longer, Isaac is great. His on-site interviews are the best. And as a result, we were like, oh, you know what? Format is good for conversations and questions. Audio. And you know what? Magazine has a lot of great podcasts. Slate. So Isaac now has his own show called I Have to Ask. Every week he talks to a different interesting newsmaker, sometimes about subjects literary, sometimes about subjects political. One of my favorite recent ones was a very... A uh, sprightly conversation with Maggie Haberman, the wonderful New York Times reporter who seems to know everything that's going on in Trumpville better than the Trumpkins themselves. Uh, and he talked about her work process and what she thinks about the administration so far. I had a great conversation this week with Lydia Polgreen, the new incoming, uh, still newish editor of Huffington Post, now HuffPost, and what they're trying to accomplish over there. Um, so download, I have to ask. Isaac is the best. His show is great. You should listen to it. Uh, another announcement. You may have noticed another podcast preview in your Culture Fest feed this week. That's a preview of the Slate Plus Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club and its episode on the Parallax View. This is a show that Sam Adams, who's the critic who reviewed Baby Driver for us that we mentioned and who edits our Browbeat blog, is doing where he talks to different critics uh, about the greatest paranoid political thrillers of movie history um, for no particular reason. Just seems like a good moment to check such things out. Uh, Dana, I think you're going to be on a show. Uh, yeah, Sam and I are planning to do one in the next couple of weeks, probably on the Born Ultimatum, which I wrote him because I just wanted to get in on some of this paranoid action when I heard about it. Very exciting. I'm not sure I would have classified that movie with that type of movie, so I will be sure to listen. Well, I think they're looking at sort of the latter day evolution of paranoia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so in any event, listen to the free preview on our feed. And then if you enjoy it, join Slate Plus to hear the rest. Uh, another potential benefit of Slate Plus, and this is going to be the real winner, uh, today on our Slate Plus bonus segment available only to Slate Plus members, we'll be having a conversation about mayonnaise. Best condiment or worst condiment? We may even do a ranking of condiments. To hear this hard-hitting segment and the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club and to support Slate and the work we do, you should sign up for Slate Plus. You can get it for free for 90 days by downloading our new iOS app at slate.com slash app, and you can get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months. So get Slate Plus by trying the app for free for 90 days at slate.com slash app. Whew, so much business. Okay, Steve, what's next? The rap demigod Jay-Z has released his latest record, 444, or like four minutes and 44 seconds. Uh, we are joined by uh, Jack Hamilton to discuss. Jack is Slate's pop critic. He's a professor of American studies and media studies at the University of Virginia, for which I'm extremely jealous. Jack, I spent my best graduate school years at UVA. Welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Uh, I have to admit, Jay-Z is one of those uh, media juggernauts, cultural juggernauts, about which I have Zero opinion, none whatsoever. Uh, nonetheless, I uh, understand from reading your terrific essay on the subject that this album comes uh, at a specific point in the arc of his life and his career. But before we get to that, why don't you pick a track to kick us off? Um, well, my favorite track on the album uh, is probably, I think it's the second to last track on the album. It's called Marcy Me. Um, and it's this very sort of nostalgic, wistful song about his sort of childhood and upbringing um, which is really one of the most uh, sort of effective pieces of subject matter over Jay-Z's career. Um, these sort of like kind of personal reflection that also manages to just be really um, sort of emotional and um, resonant. Uh, and Marcy Me is, is, a, is a fantastic track. Um, yeah, it's the one, it's the track on the album that I found to be the the real sort of masterpiece of this uh, work. Back when Ratchet was a Ratchet and the Vixen was a Vixen and Jam Master Jay was a lob. Uh. 
I was mixing, cooking coke in the kitchen back when Robin was a piston. Mike was losing to Isaiah, but he soon will get his six one. Gave birth to my verbal imagination. Assume a virtue if you have not. Or better yet, here's a verse from Hamlet. Lord, we know who we are, yet we know not what we may be. So maybe I'm the one, or maybe I'm crazy. I'm from Marcy Houses, where the boys died by the thousand back when Pam was on Martin. Yeah, that's where it all started. When First of all, like one thing about 444 that I can say really unequivocally is that the production is spectacular. Um, it's produced by No ID, who's a who's a really venerable uh, producer out of Chicago. Um, he was really Kanye West's main mentor. Um, so like Jay, an, an elder statesman. Um, and it's just it's it's really beautiful what he's done with all the tracks. This is a sample based record um, at a time when sample based hip hop is becoming increasingly rare. Um, and yeah, it's just it's, you know. It's, so the, the the backing track is really gorgeous. Um, and then with Jay, there's a there's a real vulnerability on this track and a real sort of um, I, to me, it feels like the most personal piece of music on this album. Um, it, an album that that has been heralded for being a very personal work. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is the track to me that feels the most sort of true to uh, you know everything that made Jay Z great from the beginning. This sort of storytelling. Uh, this very kind of ambiguous relationship to the to um, the world that he came out of um, at the same you know very very loving and yet at the same time uh, really reflective. I think Jay Z over the course of his career um, has really been one of the most sort of like something that's been underrated about him is his, his sort of introspection. Um, yeah, and so these are and this is a track that I think is really exemplary of this. And I think for me, who's been a Jay Z fan since his 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 first album, which came out when I was in high school, which makes me feel incredibly old <laughs> um, and probably makes him feel older. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is the track for, for me where I was like, there it is. You know, this is, this, is, this is what this guy does better than really pretty much anyone ever has. Can I ask a question about the samples in Marcy Me? Because sure. I, I was, if it was in there, I was not able to hear it. But it seems like the title Marcy Me, you know, a, a play on the Marcy Houses, the housing project where he grew up, has to be some kind of play on Marvin Gaye's Mercy, Mercy Me. But does he sample that song anywhere? He does not. Um, he samples uh, a, a song by a Portuguese uh, rock group from the 1960s called Quarteto One 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 One. Um, and Dana, maybe you can actually name the title. The song title, which I didn't know until just now, is Todo Mundo e Ninguém, which means everyone is no one. And it's a great little sample. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, this is one of the things, I mean, one of the things that's really wonderful about this album, again, to not sort of just continually rave about the production, but, um, you know, this is an album, one of the reasons sample-based hip-hop has sort of uh, waned in recent years is that it's so expensive. Um, and it's so expensive to sort of the, the budget for clearing samples. It takes a long time to clear the rights. Jay-Z is one of the artists in hip hop who has, you know, a lot of money to work with. And so it's great to have a, an art producer like No ID who's basically given um, probably a pretty hefty budget to really make music to his heart's desire. And that's, you know, every track on this is just exquisitely produced. One thing that struck me as one of the most fascinating dynamics about this album is that it's set up in some ways as an answer album to Lemonade, the Beyonce album from last year that we all discussed along with everybody else in the entire world. And I found myself, um, you know, I've been a longtime fan of the work of both Jay-Z and Beyonce, but don't really think of them as operating in the same space where one would compare the work of the one to the other. Like she's just great at R&B and he is one of the greatest rappers of all time. And 
Uh, they've been collaborators and featured on each other's tracks, but like for all of the verbal dexterity and sophistication of his work over time and his ability to create, I think really like emotionally sophisticated and complex meanings, uh, often around the subject of his history and his past and his ascent and sort of how he feels about that trajectory of his own life. I found his description of his response to like having his whole marriage turned into his wife's art to be like not super interesting, subtle or sophisticated. Like the lyric, I suck at love is (laughs) that just seems like an insufficient answer to the amount of uh, dexterity and sophistication and like emotional range that Beyonce described in Lemonade. And like, Let's listen to a little bit of 444, which is the title track of the album and which, you know, is maybe the most explicit answer song. And is essentially an extended apology to, to Beyonce. I apologize, often womanized, took for my child to be born, see through a woman's eyes, took for these natural twins to believe in miracles, took me too long for this song, I don't deserve you. I harass you out in Paris, please come back to Rome, you make it home. We talked for hours when you were on tour. Please pick up the phone, pick up the phone. I said don't embarrass me instead of be mine. That was my proposal for us to go steady. That was your 21st birthday. You mature faster than me. I wasn't ready. I, I had a lot of trouble sort of unequivocally loving this album um, and, and sort of having the gushing response to it that, that a number of other people did. Um, and it comes down to me to really like this sort of central question of, you know why are why are we interested in Jay Z as a as a culture as consumers? Are we interested in him because he is or at least was a truly extraordinary artist, or are we interested in him because he's super famous? Um, and this is something that I think really speaks to sort of like where Jay Z's career is at right now. It's something that I've thought a lot about in listening to Four Forty Four and reading some of the responses to it. Is that I think that there's a there's a generation of people uh, people who are around my students' age. Um, whose real relationship to Jay-Z is as someone who's kind of famous for being famous. Um, And I think for for audiences who are invested in that side of him, there's this way that 444 resonates in this sort of like kind of celebrity breadcrumb Jay-Z, Beyonce saga that's sort of kind of half playing out in public. Again, I think Lemonade is a far superior album to 444. I mean, Lemonade, I think, is is a real masterpiece in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if that's entirely because, you know, Jay-Z is just not up to that type of, um, writing, if he's not up to that type of sort of, um, you know, revelation, but yeah, this isn't something, I don't know, like to me, this was something that one of the things I ran up against, against when listening to this album is like, okay, would I really be interested in this? if I didn't know the whole backstory of Jay-Z's celebrity. And this is something that I think Jay-Z's earlier music is so compelling upon its own terms. And there's a weird aspect to sort of confessional music like this, that it relies on a certain truth claim or a certain kind of like, it's so subjective. Do you buy it or do you not buy it? Um, And to me, that's kind of an uncompelling decision to have to make about music. Like, it's like, I, I honestly just don't, care all that much about the sort of nuts and bolts of, of their marriage. And this is just getting, it feels a little oversharey. It feels a little simplistic and, and, and literal. And he's not, he's so eloquent when talking about so many other things. And, and this feels forced. It feels like something that 
it, it feels calculated and and a little cynical in a way that I don't know, you know, Jay-Z, a lot of Jay-Z's music is cynical, but it's cynical in such compelling and 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 sort of wonderful ways. And this one, yeah, it didn't didn't land for me in in that regard. And I think that sort of speaks to some of what you're getting at, Julia. Well, you talk in your review, Jack, about about this being a presentation, a sort of brazen presentation of Jay-Z and Beyonce and Tidal and the whole kind of, you know, entrepreneurial music industry that they've created for themselves as a as a, a vertically integrated brand. And this is kind of a promotion of the vertically integrated brand of their relationship. And I, I really felt that listening to this and to say something a little bit, you know, maybe shocking to Beyonce fans. I felt that watching the Lemonade, you know, visual album video as well, especially in the parts in relation to her her marriage to Jay-Z. I mean, those those things felt, I agree, oversharing, orchestrated. It seemed like it, within the narrative of that video, he was redeemed very, very easily, just kind of so easily that the very harsh condemnation of him at the beginning, which was the strongest part of the album, seemed weakened. There's something about the way that they put themselves out there jointly as this completely prepackaged, glamorous celebrity power couple that, to me, takes away from the strength of some of their music, um, in- including on the Beyonce side. Yeah, I would agree. I think that, you know, um, one of the things that's been kind of missing in this saga, uh, it, it, with some, you know, quarters excluded, I, like certainly Bell Hooks wrote something that was very controversial around this. But I do think that there's been a sort of skepticism of capitalism that's been missing in, in some of the discussion of this. And I would not say that this is restricted to Jay-Z and Beyonce. I think this is a problem in a lot of sort of pop culture writing um, and pop culture consumption these days. Um, but yeah, thinking about, you know, just in terms of like the sort of standard that's being set by these kind of products that are being put out, um, you know, with, with works like Lemonade or, or works like 444, which also comes bundled with a sort of visual component just the amount of money that you need to be able to produce things like this and the amount of kind of fame and just capital generally, whether it's economic capital, cultural capital, that to, to really command this attention in the first place, I don't really know if that's a good model for pop music, you know, and it's, it's a model that I think is increasingly gaining hold in, in terms of musicians becoming these kind of poly artists, these sort of poly, you know, multimedia uh, entities. And it's, I don't know, it's like, you know, I think sometimes it can be really thrilling, but when it starts to become the operant mode, it's, it's, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's a little, it can be, it can be kind of troubling for me. Well, I mean, the case that Jay-Z makes on this album and, and a case that I think is a strong one is that, you know, what it means for black artists, um, who did not grow up in a position of privilege of any kind to claim capitalism as their own engine has a, a political power and comment embedded within it that you can you can choose to give it how much weight and how you listen to it. But I, to, for me, it has a lot of weight. I mean, I, the the notion of rappers who have become successful then rapping about what success means to them and the uh, costs that that can sometimes impose upon their work like that's a frequent refrain in the in you know looking at the work of various uh, successful artists over time. And, you know, we haven't even gotten to, and I don't think we have time to get to some of the other songs in this album that talk about Jay-Z's relationship to money and power within a capitalist system and having acquired both. Um, but but just on the subject of their marriage, I mean, I think you're, of course, right, Dana, that Beyonce figured out how to commodify her marital anguish um, in a way that one can cock an eyebrow at. But I would just say that those songs, to me, felt like 
each of them. I really the whole album. I think almost every song on that album is a song that could like stand universally and resonate as a piece of music for people who've been through relationship experiences like the ones she describes. And I do not think that 444 has that power. Jack, I wanted to ask you about one line that's generated a lot of controversy from the song The Story of O.J. on this album, which is a line that's being interpreted as an anti-Semitic dig, but has also been defended in some other quarters. You can read me the exact line, but essentially Jay-Z is saying something like, hey, listeners, if you're wondering why the Jews own all the property, here's the reason. They've got the credit and we don't. So what's that all about? Should we find that as despicable as it kind of sounds to me on first listen? Um, yeah, so the actual line is, you ever wonder why Jewish people own all the property in America? This is how they did it. It's a really complicated subject. I, I think that I find that line pretty appalling. Um, and I, I have a, a really tough time sort of defending it. Um, you know, rap does, you know, have a history um, in some quarters in particular of a sort of casual anti-Semitism um, that has always been sort of that is often laced in a kind of quasi admiration. I've heard, I've seen this line being defended as like, oh, he's like sort of admiring Jewish success. But you know, so much anti-Semitism is laced with that, and so much, so much racism is laced with that. I mean, this is the story of American racism in a lot of ways. A sort of white hatred, but also desire of of of, of stereotypes that they attribute to black people. Which is sort um, of what your book about pop music is about, right? In a way, is sort of the the taking up of such positive stereotypes, right? Yeah, um, yeah, no, absolutely. You know that this is sort of that there's there's often a sort of dialectical kind of yeah, again, kind of repulsion and desire in the in these things. Um, you know, I think in in particular with regards to the certain kind of current political climate and the the enormous upsurge of sort of open anti-Semitism in American uh, discourse. I, I just I think I find that line pretty inexcusable, and it's just sort of. Um, I don't know. It's just lazy. And I don't really know why, why it's there. It's not funny. It's not insightful. It's just kind of, it's, it feels like a sort of raw provoc provocation. Um, it feels honestly, it's like, you know, I, I find the same thing when I listen to sort of Eminem's music that he's made in his forties, where it's sort of trying to grab some sort of edginess in a way that is, uh, I don't know. It's just kind of like, I don't know. Don't go there, man. <laughs> All right. Well, Jack, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Let me please mention your book that Dana brought up, Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll and the Racial Imagination. Jack Hamilton, the Slate's pop critic. Jack, thank you so much for coming back on. Thanks so much for having me on. It's always a blast. David Brooks is, of course, the columnist for The New York Times. For Brooks, passive-aggressively jibing the bourgeoisie for its little social cues and miscues is hardly anything new. However, Twitter went into a snark frenzy when he published a column that featured the following paragraph. Recently, I took a friend with only a high school degree to lunch. Insensitively, I led her into a gourmet sandwich shop. Suddenly, I saw her face freeze up as she was confronted with sandwiches named Padrino and Pomodoro, and ingredients like Sopressata, Capricolo, and Striata Baguette. I quickly asked her if she wanted to go somewhere else, and she anxiously nodded yes, and we ate Mexican. I mean, Julia, I have to say, scarcely scarcely a syllable of the, that paragraph is not stupid uh, and insulting uh, to everyone, not least of which Brooks himself. I mean, it's a self-parody beyond self-parody. Um, I do think we 
eventually need to expand out to the point of the column and his more recent column about the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu um, uh, and what Brooks's agenda might be. But for now, just that take that paragraph alone, you as an editor, would you have let that stand? I mean, it's like ludicrous in every sense, but it's also so Brooksian that I don't actually know what your job would be if your job were to edit David Brooks. Like, at this point, when he's been writing this column for however many years, is your point to, isn't your point sort of to get him to put paragraphs like that into the world so that they become <laughs> discussed? Like, I don't, but no, it's absurd. It's absurd. Okay, first of all, how do you know that that is what your friend was feeling? This is like entirely David Brooks's presumptions about uh, what about the friend being confused by Pomodoros and Pedrinos and whatever else. Two, we're living in a world where words like that drawn from languages other than Italian to describe food are like in fast food joints, like are everywhere. Like the, the you know, there's a common fast casual shop called Panera, where I am sure there are paninis and pomodoros and whatever the heck else. You can probably buy a Pomodoro pizza from Domino's at this point. I don't know if that's true, but I, but I bet we're not living far from that world. Um, third of all, uh, the notion that going to eat Mexican was like the the relief for his, quote, anxious looking friend. It's like, well, Mexican menus, it's not like they're like uh, flat pieces of bread with ground beef in between. <laughs> like all of the language of those menus is in another language as well. Crispy corn chips with <laughs> avocado mash. Semi-circular rounded corn chips. Yeah, what like avocado mash. Avocado mash speckled with tomatoes and and onion bits uh, and cilantro, which is like parsley, but tastes a bit more like soap. I mean, like that made no sense. Like there just was such a um, there were so many presumptions in it that didn't actually make any sense. Also, nobody knows what the difference between capicola and soprasata is. And you can still just eat. Oh, it's like meat. It's meat that goes in things. Can I also just say that the sentence, insensitively, I led her into a gourmet sandwich shop, is possibly the funniest <laughs> single sentence that has ever appeared in the New York Times, and the one most needing to be accompanied by a boom chicka wow wow porn soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I, the other thing that's actually the most... You know, so there's all of those particular problems within that paragraph. But the actual problem, I think, with the piece is that what he's what Brooks is ostensibly doing in the piece or professes to be doing in the piece is responding to a really fascinating new book by Richard Reeves called Dream Hoarders, which basically talks about all of the different social structures around housing and education that keep poor people from uh, improving their lots in American life. Uh, and he's like, all of these ideas are really interesting. But after talking to the author a bunch about them, I concluded that the social structures are less important than, uh, you know, social cues like this one I'm about to tell you in this ludicrous paragraph. And he never explains why. Like, in addition to having this insubstantial argument about this, uh, you know, famed, now famed sandwich shop. Uh, Imbroglio. Yes. Dana, how dare you use such an Italianate <laughs> word? Let's go with something more American like dust up or to do. Anyway. Those sound very, very British to me. Oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> um, problem? Fight. There you go. Not like problem. Problem. Yes. Sandwich shop problem. Uh, like he never explains why he thinks these social cues are more important than the structural things, which sound much more pervasive and important and bad. Like, so he doesn't even support that argument. Well, essentially, I guess the argument that he's making 
sort of from this this Reeves book is something like the big sort argument, right? The idea that we sort ourselves into these class-based communities and create our own languages and signifiers that people outside that community can't understand and that that is a huge contributor to the division between classes, races, et cetera, in the U.S. So that in itself seems like an important and valid argument to pursue. The way that he, as he frequently does, uses kind of random anecdotal data from his own life to support it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And it also doesn't allow for the huge and very important social critique that that analysis excludes, which has to do not with, you know, the blue state uh, exclusion that he's wringing his hands over and what sandwiches we're all caring about eating, but the massive structural inequalities in the entire system, blue and red. And for example, I mean, to have a column that's all about sort of class misunderstanding and the inability to communicate over basic things like, you know, getting a sandwich together and not in any way to mention race as a factor just seems bizarre to me. There's just a there's a bubble that David Brooks writes from within, even though he's always critiquing bubbles that is completely unaware of its own bubbleness. Look, it's it's a horrifying column. I mean, I I I really think that that pivot in, I mean, this has been David Brooks's MO from the beginning, which is he looks and sounds like someone who which he which he did, someone who grew up in the very heart of Blue State America. I mean, he grew up in Greenwich Village in New York. He knows all of the signifiers and social cues that that allow one to self-identify and present as uh, someone in the you know hyper-educated classes. And his move is always to sound perfectly reasonable until he makes his pivot, at which point an, an enormous elision or false equivalence, like a whopping one, you know, hits you in the head like a fucking haddock, you know, and and um, and yet and we he go does with cod. It. I need more American fish there <laughs> <laughs> with the fucking cod right between the eyes, and and you know he thinks that his tone of voice and his bearing and the way he looks and the way he sounds and the way he writes is going to get you to ignore the fish hitting you right in the fucking face. And I, I just want to read it because it's unbelievable. You know, he summarizes this book, which is essentially about how, you know, the upper middle class in this country and the important of, importance of the Reeves book is it points to something other than the 1%, right? I mean, the vast majority of the people pointing their angry fingers at hedge fund managers, me included, are probably in the upper 2% or 5%, but certainly in the upper 30%. And a social critique that points the finger back at us as people who hoard privilege, especially through education, under the guise of pure merit, you know, is is profoundly necessary. Um, and and Reeves has supplied it, so it's an important book. Uh, Brooks takes it seriously just long enough to say, I was braced by Reeves' book, but after speaking with him a few times about it, I've come to think the structural barriers he emphasizes are less important than the informal social barriers that segregate the lower 80%, which is unbelievable because he gives you absolutely no first-person testimony from these conversations with Reeves and absolutely no reason for his own sudden decision that Soprasada is more important to the you know, uh, f- you know, failing social prospects of the lower eighty percent of the country than f- you know housing all policy, of the other education policy, housing, I right. mean, race, housing policy, education, uh, you know, uh, the rise of finance, the offshoring of of uh, of, of jobs, the deunionization and deindustrialization of the American economy. David Brooks exists to hide those things. That is his sole 
purpose as a writer is to hide those things through this smirking, pseudo-comical social observation. And and he will never be able to flee from that ever again because it's such a fucking howler in this in this column. And I want to add that after writing this column, a bunch of people took to Twitter and various other places and said, well, you know, there is actually a, a reputable, interesting left-wing critique of social distinctions taste distinctions, class distinctions as enforced by taste hierarchies. And that's the work of the French social critic and sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. The thing about Bourdieu is Americans generally don't, even Americans who are familiar with the names, you know, Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, by and large don't know Pierre Bourdieu, in part because the English department, which supported their American beachhead, collapsed as an important American institution after Foucault and Derrida became prominent in the United States. Uh, uh, and But Bourdieu really was the one who took their places. Just as I was leaving graduate school, this became the dominant theoretical mode of understanding literature and the study of literature. It was among the reasons that I left graduate school, because it seems to me in the United States of America, if one thing is true about this country, it's that capital, and not cultural capital or social capital, capital plays the tune to which we all dance more nakedly than in any quote-unquote civilized country. So the idea that in this country, the taste distinctions that Bourdieu was pointing to, the difference between someone who likes Richard Strauss and someone who likes or recognizes the name Glenn Gould, that may have a persuasive force in France. I don't doubt for one second that the French dole out life opportunities according to cultural capital. I'm sure that they've done it for 300 fucking years. Uh, No doubt about that. But there is absolutely no fucking way that that's what happens in this country. What happens in this country is people make a fuckload of money and they tell the rest of us what to do and when to do it and never fucking apologize for it. And they've never heard of Glenn Gould or John fucking Keats. And of course, at the very moment that people are waking up to the cronyism of the and crony capitalism of the Republican Party, the American right is going to pivot to, of all fucking people, Pierre Bourdieu. I mean, the hypocrisy and the insanity of it is out of fucking control. I am so pleased to hear how Steve feels about this column. The only thing I would say um, is all of that is true. And the sleight of hand that he employs in the middle of the column suggesting we should care about these social things suddenly instead is maddening. The other thing I would say is that I would commend our listeners to read a piece that Osita and Wanevu wrote for Slate about this, which I think was brilliant and the be- definitely the smartest thing about this column, um, which pointed out that, you know, all of the structural points and critiques taken, Steve, like those things are more important and should not be swept under the rug. The notion that the particular subtle languages in which different groups of people talk to each other and communicate in this culture have power embedded in them, which, as you say, is like a classically lefty notion um, it's not a bad thing for David Brooks to be taking note of that and beginning to be aware of the fact that that some reference points could be exclusionary or could be sort of tickets that a set of people who haven't been exposed to certain ideas don't have and that, that cause problems for them if they're trying to get a job or get into a school or anything else. Um, but what Osita very uh, gently points out is that what David Brooks thinks has transpired at this restaurant would qualify as a microaggression. The term that's been much maligned as like the hallmark of the stupidity of political correctness by people like David Brooks 
uh, like that is ac- actually what he is suggesting has happened here, that he, through his blindness in a minor and inconsequential moment, has made someone with less power than him feel very uncomfortable in a way that does not properly recognize the the social structures that keep people where they are. And Osita's like, yeah. And if you, uh, more eloquently than this, if <laughs> like why not apply the same logic to race, gender, and other uh, categories that people like David Brooks have more problem according significance. You know, he's willing to ap- apply it in the class sense here, but but not in the more broad sense. And that is like the 18th reason why this column is incredibly maddening. Yeah, that's what Osita nails, I think, so perfectly is the, is the condescension of that Soprasata paragraph. And as Osita puts it, the question of whether we should deride the less affluent for, as Brooks suggests, needing safe spaces away from elite fixations like bourgeois breads and David Brooks columns. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, read Osita. Don't read David Brooks. That's my conclusion. All right, yeah, check out David Brooks Almost Gets It, and um, no doubt we'll have uh, a lot of inflamed and informed uh, opinions both about this, so come to facebook.com slash culturefest and share them. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Dana, what do you have? Well, because of the late-breaking story of the death of the actor Martin Landau, which happened yesterday, just as we were getting this podcast together, we decided not to do him as a topic. It would take quite a bit of research to talk about the many decades-long career of the great actor Martin Landau, but I thought I would just throw him in to my endorsements because he'll be so missed on the big screen. There's there's just nobody like him, and he was such a unique presence on screen for such a long time. I think people associate Martin Landau now more with great roles he played when he was older, and actually the one that I recommended on Twitter that people run and, and watch this movie last night when the news of his passing broke was uh, Ed Wood, which I consider to be the best Tim Burton movie by far and one of the best Martin Landau performances uh, in which he plays Bella Lugosi to um, to Johnny Depp's uh, Z movie director Ed Wood. So so that's one sort of mini endorsement within the Martin Landau universe. But I would also just encourage you to go out, look at his filmography, and explore some of the diversity of movies that he's been in. So he plays a villain in Hitchcock's North by Northwest. He's actually the guy who who chases Cary Grant over the nose of George Washington on Mount Rushmore at the climax of the movie. He was in Cleopatra with um, Elizabeth Taylor in 1963. He's just a person who's been kind of an extra, usually a heavy or some sort of you know character actor because of his very hawk-like features throughout most of mid-century film history up until very recent years. So... Um, so Ed Wood is a great place to start, as is Crimes and Misdemeanors, one of Woody Allen's best movies that he's also fantastic in. But just Martin Landau it up. Go go on YouTube, see what you can find, and uh, and treat yourself to a Martin Landau movie in the next week. You just spoiled the end of North by Northwest mm-hmm. for me, Dana. <laughs> you needed to know who was on that nose. <laughs> now I guess I never should see it. <laughs> Julia, what do you have? Uh, I want to endorse a really terrific novel that I recently read. It, the book is called Homegoing by Yag Yassi. It's a debut novel with a really interesting structure. It starts several hundred years ago in West Africa with the story of two sisters and follows um, their descendants. One of them is taken into bondage and sent to the United States as a slave. The other one continues living in West Africa through a period of great political turmoil. And each chapter... Uh, tracks one of their descendants in alternating structures. You basically get a bunch of incredibly heartrending short stories throughout the last 200 years of history. And it's just really 
beautifully done uh, and interesting and smart. And uh, I highly commend it to our listeners. Homegoing by Yag Yassi. I have a uh, um, super enthusiastic endorsement, which is, you know, one of the effects or I guess after effects of uh, the success of Hamilton is that young people no longer reflexively regard the American, you know, Broadway musical as a superannuated and creaky, nerdy form. I mean, they're kind of into it. And my daughter um, began listening obsessively to the cast album of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. So we got tickets and we went as a family. It's on Broadway. It's actually right next to um, Hamilton at the Imperial Theater. Uh, Broadway's expensive. Uh, I don't expect uh, everybody to leap up and go um, pay for these tickets. It's something we do once every about five years. But um, I thought what I saw was absolutely amazing. I mean, I had already really uh, cottoned to the um, to the album. The c- compositional elements behind the music are kind of remarkable. It uses EDM in some of the same ways that Hamilton breaks ground with the musical and and hip hop, but um, but it's also operatic, very operatic. And then the th- three or four ballads are absolutely beautiful. But so essentially, it's 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 taking one part of uh, Tolstoy's novel War and Peace and turning it into a sung through musical. There's one line of spoken dialogue. Um, it currently stars the guy who played uh, James Madison um, and uh, Hercules Mulligan. Um, another thing that uh, in Hamilton, another thing they did that I thought—I mean, it's staged, uh, you know, daringly staged. Um, it's it's very funny. Uh, the music's astonishing. It is the best live singing I've ever heard in a in a musical production by far. Um, Ingrid Michaelson, the pop star, plays Sonia, is fantastic in it. Oh, uh, currently. one of her songs was on my strat list last week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The, the Girls Chase Boys or whatever song. Yes, Girls Chase Boys are a big hit. But anyway, so um, there's also... Um, racially, what I would call, um, for lack maybe of a better term, racially indifferent casting. I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Oak Onodoan has replaced Josh Groban. So it wasn't, you know, it, 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 indifferent, I think is the right word, right? There wasn't like a message included specifically um, in the uh, racial identity of the cast. And the indifference works beautifully. You you do not think of it at all as you watch the play. And that made me think that this is a, a breakthrough, that, that, that the idea that you need to go in thinking this character has to be played by X kind of an actor um, in certain situations can be thrown out the window. Anyway, it it's an, it's an amazing, amazing musical, and I really highly commend it to anyone inclined to go see it. All right, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Yes, I'm on. I'm